Well, I want to jump right into the text of Jonah. How many of you guys have been loving going through the book of Jonah so far? It's been good so far. I've been just like overwhelmed with how fascinating this has been for me as well. So um, each week you guys get to hear me preach to you for maybe an hour, and, and I, I've been getting the Lord preaching to me for like seven days. And so I'm, I'm like trying to like take an ocean and put it into a cup and, and, and pour it out for you. And so that is a challenge I face this morning. Um, so pray for this preacher. Amen. Um, but so far what we know about the book of Jonah, right, we have this rebellious hypocritical prophet who runs from his own God, who hates his God, ironically, and in his running away from God, um, God uses a severe mercy to wake him up and get his attention to the point that everybody else around him sees what's going on and he's still asleep to what's happening, right? And, and his spiritual slumber leads him to the absolute depths, and in God's severe mercy, he sends this uh, instrument of death that ironically becomes an instrument of life that as he's swallowed up, he's finally awake and alive to what God is doing in his heart and his life. And so we jump into Jonah chapter 3 and we meet up with this rebellious prophet on the shore after he's been vomited out with some fish food. Okay, so this is where we're meeting up with the book of Jonah in chapter 3 is what we're going to look at today. And the title for my message is How to Let Evil Win. How to let evil win. Ooh, right? Um, how to let evil win. We're going to talk about that today. Um, uh, but before we do that, I just want to revisit this, this concept that um, we're kind of, in some ways, fishing the book of Jonah out of what we've learned from VeggieTales and realize like, it's a, it's a little bit more than a story about a cucumber. It's, it's a story about, um, that is told in this, this comic book style writing, right? It's, it's where all the characters don't live up to their stereotypes. And, and all those situations are extreme and they're intense. And, and what you see happening play out over the pages of Jonah seems to read a lot more like a comic book or a graphic novel or an anime show, for instance. Like everything, every single instance in the book of Jonah is intense and it's ironic and it's action-packed. And you're going like, wow, this is amazing. And you're just drawn into the story, which is why uh, I've uh, asked Grant Overbeek each week to help us uh, depict what this might look like. Uh, he's drawn a series of four drawings. This is the third drawing that he's drawn. This I want to show this week and um, just to depict... What's going on in Jonah chapter 3, um, as Jonah, we're going to see him go and preach in Nineveh. And it's, it's a lot more like this, this very intense kind of um, scenario that if we were reading it today, it might be drawn or written something like this instead. And so uh, just I'm loving the art that Grant's been doing. If you've missed it, um, it's out in the foyer. You can go check it out. There's, there's another drawing out in the foyer right now. Um, and so this is what's going on in the book of Jonah. This is what we've been understanding about the book of Jonah. And of all the scholars and the commentators and the, the authors that I've been reading, one of the, the interesting thing is one of the people who seems to get what's going on the most is not actually a commentator or a scholar. He's actually a poet. He's a British poet from the 1970s, and his name is Thomas Carlyle. You guys like poetry? Anybody? Okay, um, if you're okay with it, I want to share a few of his poems that depict what's going on in the book of Jonah. Okay, he wrote a little book of poems called You, Jonah, and he, and he, and he depicts what's going on. So chapter one, he writes a poem called Let's Cool Down. I love this. Uh, chapter one, he, he writes a poem about chapter one in Jonah, and it's called Let's Cool Down. It says, I know a better way to circumvent your silly streak. He's talking to God. 
of mixing love and righteous judgment. All I need to do is to take the next flight west beyond your jurisdiction. This will give you time for your sober second thoughts to swear off this kick of simple-minded kindness. So that's, that's let's cool down. Uh, chapter 2, he writes a poem called Inside the Monster. It's about Jonah 2. I was as low as I could get when I remembered God. Odd. That my distress impressed with me with his apparent absence when his premise daily presence hadn't meant a blessed thing. And finding myself in that hole with my soul, fainting and rolling with the swell of my swollen ego, was good enough to kill me good. Instead, I saw stars in the dark and started home on a welcome water spout. <laughs> uh, this, the, the poem he writes about Jonah 3 is called Counselor to the Almighty, obviously written in the voice of Jonah here. And this is what we're going to look at a little bit today. Not the poem, but the chapter. He, he, he writes, Think twice before your pardon. Men repent, even in ashes, but repent again of their repentance. Take the wiser bias of my advice. Consider your charity to such, oh, confine your charity to such good neighbors as your humble servant. That's for free. Um, but I loved how Thomas Carlyle just depicts what's going on in the book of Jonah. Uh, he seems to really get what's going on. So as we dive back into Jonah chapter 3, we're picking up right where we left off, where Jonah, God's rebellious, hypocritical prophet, really needs a shower. Right, he just got out of a great fish. And so we're going to meet up with him. Jonah chapter 3, if you have your Bible open to verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to that great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And, and there's almost a sense that when you read this point and you're like, you're thinking like, oh yeah, I almost forgot what was going on. I almost forgot that this was actually what we've heard previously. We, we kind of get lost track of the main narrative of what's going on when, with getting caught up in all of Jonah's drama, right? He, he's like running from God and he's like, no just throw me overboard. Eh. And the fish comes and grabs him, and you're like, wait a second, I kind of lost track of what this book is actually about, which is God's divine mission to bring mercy and grace to the whole world, especially to people who don't deserve it. And, and so we're, we're, we're hearing this text again, and you're going like, I feel like I've heard that before. It's, it's, it's parallel to what the first few verses of chapter 1 say. Right? Look at chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to that great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because this wickedness has come up before me. You guys ever read a, uh, a choose-your-own-story novel or a book, right? Like, there's the beginning of the story, and then you get a chance, like, oh, does the character do this? Or does the okay, I'm going to pick this one, we'll go to this page, and the story continues on, you know, and you just kind of go through. We have a book like that at home, and I'm really sick of it, because my kids think it's like different stories every time, but they always pick the same path. And, and so, uh, you know, Danny always is doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, even though there's nine different options. Uh, and, and you look at this and you're like, chapter three, verse one and two feels like option number two. Jonah, you've, you've heard the beginning of the story already. Now, here's a new chance. Here's a new page. Here's a new chapter you could possibly write. And, and so all of this is framed in, we're kind of brought back into the main part of the narrative. All of this is framed in um, 
God's perspective as he looks over the, the great cause of injustice and evil happening here on planet earth. And especially in this one corner of the world called Assyria. At the time, largest empire the world had ever known. And so he sends his prophet, his messenger, Jonah, to go confront this evil. Go to Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has risen before me. And, there's, and we're going to read through this chapter and, and it's going to deal with concepts of, of wickedness and evil and, and oppression and uh, turning from sin and fierce divine anger and judgment. And, and I'm already sensing it in this room. You guys are feeling real inspired, real anticipatory of all the happy feelings you're about to experience, right? Like this, <laughs> and we struggle with this because like this kind of, it's not something, you know, these, these concepts don't often make it onto refrigerator magnets, right? You're, you, you don't normally go, oh, yes, I just found a frame at Hobby Lobby that says something about that. And we struggle with these concepts of divine judgment. We struggle with a God who would look out at evil and oppression and say, no, that's wrong. Something new needs to happen. You, you, you should change your behavior. You should repent. And, and we wrestle with this. Um, and we're going to dive into that momentarily. But I think what you need to first understand is the deep emotion that, that, that the Israelites and Jonah would have felt when they heard something like this. Okay? Because uh, God's not just being a jerk. Okay? When, when they would have heard something like this, go preach against Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, for its... They would, when they would have heard Jonah get commissioned, they would have been like, yes! Go get him, Jonah! Because here's what would happen. This is, this is what history tells us about ancient Assyria. They were brutal, and they were brilliant. One of the things that they would do is they would assess on the outlying parts of their territory, the, the strategic cities and the strategic roads, and then they would go and conquer these cities and these roads that would be, you know, anchor points to set up the next expansion of their empire. And as they would go in and as they would conquer a city, they would do some very severely terrible and disgusting things to ensure that nobody wanted to rebel. And, and just to keep this PG-13, really what they would do is more X-rated or R-rated. But they would go in and they would take the key members of the city and fillet them alive. And then they would go and take women and children and men of the city and impale them on poles around the city. All right, this is the, the very tame version of what they would do, okay? So you can imagine how much worse it would get. And they would go in and do this so that anybody passing by would see this happening and decide, you know what? I think compliance with Assyria seems the wiser option. I don't think rebellion feels like a good idea. Because they would look at their own compatriots and, and, and see what had happened to the people who dared to resist the evil, terrible empire of Assyria. And, and what we actually learned this from, um, from ancient drawings. We've, there have actually been a number of digs, historical uh, studies in the ancient city of Mosul 
which, or the current city of Mosul in, in modern Iraq, which is the ancient city of Nineveh, which is where it used to be. And so they're digging and they're excavating and they're uncovering um, different drawings and different pieces of historical documentation. And there's actually, I only want to show you one just for the sake of reference. The, the, the other ones that I was looking at this week are like extremely graphic and I don't think it would really be appropriate to show them here. But you can do the research on your own. These are available. Um, they're, they're public uh, the, in the, 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 the British Museum in London. You can look it up. But um, one of the things, this is called the, the Lachish Relief, and this is a story depicted of Assyria's, uh, Assyria's conquering of the Israelite city, Lachish, and what they would do when they would come in and they would conquer and how they would set up fear and, and rule this city. And, and this, is, this, is a, this is what they would do when they would come in and just absolutely decimate a population to conquer them and, and rule over them. And so when, when Jonah's people hear God commission Jonah to go preach against the wickedness of Assyria at Nineveh, there is a sense of like overwhelming relief. Eager anticipation of like fire from heaven that he's going to go preach to them. Okay. And then when Jonah gets clued in to what God actually wants him to, re, you know, offer a, a chance of repentance, a chance of turning from this, that they might actually receive divine mercy. Jonah's going, I don't want anything to do with that. These people need to be stopped. This is, this is evil. This is oppression. We need justice, not mercy. This is what Jonah's feeling. So when God sends his man to go confront the evil and the oppression of Nineveh, he's not just being a jerk. This is one of the most extreme examples of systemic oppression and injustice the world had ever seen up until this point. And so there's this tension looming in the background. It's almost like this dark background track, just like we listened to in the uh, bumper video. Like there's this sense in which there's this, this, this divine tension between human justice and divine justice. And what does this look like playing out on the course of planet Earth? And so this is, this is the, 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 the feeling we get as we're reading this and we're, we're opening our, our mind up to what God is actually saying to his man in this actual situation. So we're going to jump back into verse 3. The second time after going into the belly of the fish for running away from God, God vom sends the fish to vomit him back out on shore. And now, verse 3, now Jonah obeys the word of the Lord as he goes to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city, or, or it could be translated great city. A visit required three days. And on the first day, Jonah started into the city. Okay, pardon the pun, but Jonah's still a little salty here. Okay, not just because of the salt water. Like he's like still like, there's something between him and God. Because listen to what he says. This is the message he gives. He proclaims, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. In English, that's eight words. In Hebrew, that's five words. Okay. Go to Nineveh and preach against them for their wickedness has come up before me, God says. He goes in and says five words. Doesn't even go into the whole city. Just on the first day, five words. And there's so much missing, right? He only, he only says two things. He says, 
a time frame, 40 days, and an event. Nineveh will be overturned. That's it. And this is strange because if you look at what God told them, you're left wondering, Jonah, what are you leaving out and why? He mentions nothing about God, the God who commissioned him, the God whose, whose judgment is being rendered and enacted. He mentions nothing about God. He mentions nothing about their sin. He mentions nothing about a call to action. Like, think about this. Um, not everybody in ancient Assyria, especially Nineveh, was directly involved in these military exploits. So, so imagine like a, a baker or a blacksmith hearing this strange man walk through and saying, 40 more days and Nineveh will be over. Why? This would be out of the blue. Like, what in the world are you talking about? And even if they did believe him, which obviously they did, which the text indicates later on, what can we do to possibly avert this danger? And on whose behalf are you speaking? Like, there is so much Jonah is not saying right here. This, this is like the lowest bar possible. Jonah is doing the absolute least he possibly can. And so as we're reading this, we're like getting the sense there's probably mainly two things going on. Number one, um, when they read, they, they hear the word of the Lord from Jonah, and then they eventually return and repent. Um, the first thing is this, this feels a lot like a comic book experience, where this dramatic experience, experience of the most extreme stereotypes of wicked living instantly repent upon hearing one moment of bad preaching. And you're like, what? <laughs> That's all it takes? Uh, I, I cannot possibly preach a five-word sermon. I don't know if it's even possible, right? Jonah gets in there and God does, you know, something absolutely miraculous. And unlike what it took Jonah to get to only barely repent, these people are stumbling over themselves and expressing the most extreme versions of repentance. And you're going, wow, this is so unusual. At the very least, this is so unlike Jonah. But this is so strange. And the second thing we notice is what I would call a sense of prophetic sabotage. Like giving the absolute bare minimum in the hopes that they do hear, like, I went, God, check. But I'm still hoping they get not enough information to actually repent. And Jonah seems to give his little information to ensure the point that they don't understand, they don't repent, and therefore they don't receive mercy. It seems like that's what Jonah's doing here. But despite his sabotage, his sermon works. Surprise, God is bigger than your mediocre efforts to serve him. Amen? God is bigger than my mediocre efforts to serve him. Just last week, just last week, someone came up to me in the foyer and told me something that God spoke to them because I said it, which I didn't say. I, I actually, I went back and watched the sermon, and I was like, I know I didn't say that, but you know, Praise the Lord. God spoke to you. And this happens a lot. It's weird. But like when God is speaking through his man, it's God speaking. Right? And, and so even in his worst efforts, and I would like to think I try to give my best effort. Like even in Jonah's worst effort, God is bigger. Amen? And he speaks through his man. And so this is what's happening. Verse 5. Jonah says, 40 more days and then it will be overturned. Verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Notice this. It says the Ninevites 
Who do they believe? Not Jonah. Believed God. How? Jonah mentions nothing about God, let alone the God of the Israelites, because these Assyrians, they, history tells us that they worship many gods. They were pantheistic. And so, like, they believed one God specifically above all of them? This is strange. But their hearts are so tuned in uh, to what's going on here that, that they're actually beginning to fill in the gaps. It's, it's almost as if someone's at work despite Jonah's worst efforts. Hmm. This is interesting. History actually tells us that this was a time period where Assyria was beginning to actually experience um, a, 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 a shaking and unsettling in, the, in their economy and in their, um, in their agriculture. They, they were going through enemy attacks and internal revolts and, and famines was happening. And actually, in 763 BC, uh, one of the things we learned is that there was actually a solar eclipse happening, which, if you're pantheistic... That's a very major omen. Like, did we just offend a God? What's going on? Like, so there's a spiritual unsettling happening. And it's almost as if God was at work in the, in the scenes of history to begin to prepare Nineveh for what he was sending his prophet to speak to them. And so as God partners with Jonah, even in his bare minimum effort, the people of Nineveh are absolutely wrecked. And they not only repent, but they take on the most extreme forms of repentance. Right? They, they declared a national fast for literally everyone. And they humbled themselves in extreme fashion, putting on sackcloth, which, is, would, have, which would have identified the fact that they, they, they recognize and agree with their sinfulness, that their brokenness, their, their humility. And so the first few words of verse 5 are kind of like the, the newspaper headline of what's happening and why. And then we read all the details in the next few verses down to verse 9 of what's going on. But the headline describes why they're doing this. This is an expression of belief. They believed God. And, and we, need to, we need to get this because um, in our Western concept, concept in, our, in our Western mind, we tend to think of the word belief as like a mental agreement. So, for example, we, you might say like, dogs are better than cats. And like, I believe you. And so there's probably a Facebook group for you, right? Uh, and, and for people who believe that assertion, like, that's a mental agreement. I believe that. Or, like, I believe the sky is blue. And, and, and we, we take this mental activity where we participate in, we impose that on the word belief, and then we impose that understanding on the Bible. And the Bible's trying to get you to see that, that there's so much more to the concept of belief. So, if you're reading Jonah 3, how do you know the Ninevites believe God? How, what, do you, what do they do to show what do they believe about him? Well, they, they believe at some level that God is rendering a judgment on them. In fact, they're confronted with this judgment that what they thought was good and fine about their lives is actually not good. And it's not fine. And actually that they, they need to turn. They need to stop doing what they're doing. See, they, they, they had this closed system of morality. A system that they got to define themselves because nobody else was strong enough to like challenge them and refute this. To say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. And they'd be like, yeah, prove it. Make me do something different. 
and, and no one could. And so there's this system where you get to define your own sense of morality. And now they're confronted with this divine judgment. And so this brings them to a crisis of faith, a, a decision of trust. Either I can believe this prophet that, that what we're doing is not good and it's not fine. Or I can ignore this preacher and maybe kill him. Who knows? Let's make him a public example. They certainly were in the power to do that. But what we see is they actually accept this new judgment, that what they are doing is, is evil, that they've turned something that is bad into something that is good. And so they believe, and when they do, it is expressed by a life-altering response. Notice this. The way that the Bible talks about faith and, the, and belief is that it doesn't just stay in your mind. It's not just a change of thought. It's a totally new motivation to all your ways of living and that now my life is, is about something totally different because what I believe has redefined me to the core and as a result, my actions and my behaviors and my lifestyle is different. We see this all over scripture. When something is happening in your heart, it will naturally result in your life being different. What goes on in your heart cannot stay hidden. And whatever is revealed on the surface of your life points to a deeper heart belief. If you don't like the way that you're living, it's actually a smarter thing to look at what are you actually believing. It's not that that system is broken. It's actually working very well. And so what you believe is just naturally designed to outflow into how you're living. And so if you don't like how you're living, there's actually something about how you're believing that needs to change. You can say... You can say, I believe in a God of righteousness. I believe in a God of justice. I believe in a God of holiness all you want. But if you're living as if there's, there's no rendering of a divine standard over your life, no, you don't. So, so the Bible talks about Belief is this much more holistic life response to what God has done to you in the first place. And so let's look at how this plays out. Verse 6. Okay. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. This is important. You need to notice the king's movement here because we're going to come back to this. He rises from his throne, takes off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth and ashes. Uh, I'm sorry. Covers himself in sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Rises from his throne removes the robe that would have identified his royalty, puts on sackcloth, which would have identified himself with the sin of his people, and then he actually goes even one step beyond everybody else. He sits down in the dust. And then he makes this overly bizarre proclamation. And you thought government mandates and executive orders made life hard. Check out what he says. He issues a proclamation in Nineveh, verse 7. By the decree of the king and nobles, do not let any man or beast or herd or flock taste anything they can't even eat or drink but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth let everyone call urgently on god let them give up their evil ways and their violence who knows god may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that he we will not perish i mean this is crazy think about this you got the most powerful man on the planet known for his brutality and his and his extreme pride. 
and he's, and he's personally bowing to the lowest point and making everyone in his jurisdiction humble themselves in severe repentance. And on top of that, what does his decree include? That the beasts and the herds and the flocks have to do the same thing? I mean, this, this is repentance taken to a very extreme level, almost to the point that it's laughable to read. And so what you have is more than just a change of mind happening. You have a change of heart happening. And actually the word that he uses to describe what he's calling everybody to do is a key concept that is linked with belief. Look at verse 8. In, in the NIV, you're going to read it this way. Let them give up their evil ways. Okay, in, in the ESV, the, the word give up is actually translated turn. Let, let everyone turn from his evil way. And it's the Hebrew word shuv. Spelled S-H-U-B, but it's, it's pronounced like Shuv, right? Like, I'm going to shove somebody. I'm going to shuv. And literally, this is just a term that's derived from the normal activity of walking. Like, I, I'm walking this way. I stop walking this way. I change directions. And then I actually start going in the other direction. And what happens is the, the Hebrew prophets pick up on this concept, and they actually begin to use it to describe how we relate to God. That I'm living a particular way, I'm called upon to say, this is not okay. I change directions. I turn towards God. And then I actually walk in that direction. Let me just say it this way. If, if you're struggling to overcome a particular sin, and you hear God saying, you need to repent, you need to turn from this, repentance is the thing that he's convicting you of, it's not enough. To just stop doing the thing. Some of you are just holding on for dear life trying to just not do the thing. I'm right up at the edge and I keep looking over, but I'm just like, I'm just holding on. Hopefully I just don't go over the edge. That's not repentance. The way that the Bible talks about repentance is that I get here, I recognize there's danger here, and then I turn and then I go a different direction. There's, there's new actions that I've replaced with the action that I stopped doing. So here's just a quick spiritual life hack. If you want to stop doing this thing, and you feel God leading you to stop doing, replace it with something else. Turn and go a different direction. And that's, that's how the Bible talks about repentance. And so verse 5 says they believed God. How do we know they believed God? Verse 8 tells us they shooved. They, they stopped going one way. They turned around and they started going another way. It's an active motion in the other way. And so this is what we see the Ninevites in the process of doing, verses 7 and 8. And why do they do this? Because it's, it's, it's not a, a fun thing to hear someone say, you need to stop doing what you're doing. You need, to, you need to do something different. I don't like hearing that when someone tells me that, right? I'm sure you don't either. So why do they do this? What is the motivating belief that changes their course of action? Verse 9. They said, who knows, God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Now, I'm guessing this is not the Bible verse that you're going to find on a Christian Pinterest board. These concepts of God being fiercely angry and full of wrath and rendering judgment um, and, and the ideas of repenting and, and perishing are not easy to talk about in Christian circles, let alone any other part of your life, right? We struggle with these ideas on a deep level and we read something like this and we go, you know, I think I want to read something happy from the New Testament now. <laughs> I'm done with Jonah. 
I want to go read something to clear my head and inspire my heart and make me feel good about life. And it's kind of how we respond when we get to passages like this. But I actually want to camp out here for a little bit, right on this verse. Because this is what the passage is actually about. This passage is about God's judgment on human behavior, declaring that it's wrong and that people need to give up their ways and, and their shoes. And we tend to avoid subjects like this because here's what we're doing. We're struggling to reconcile different attributes of God, different parts of God's character that are both part of who he is. But we see both of these ideas brought up in abundance in Scripture. That God renders judgment on, on human behavior and that, that God sends his messengers throughout the Bible, sends his messengers to declare his message that, hey, what you're doing is not okay. And that you need to stop doing that and turn from that and perform a different course of action. To tell people that, in fact, they are not fine, that their thoughts and behaviors are wrong, that there's a, there's a higher standard than just your self-centered agenda and convenience. And, and we struggle with these concepts because we read other concepts in the Bible that talk about a God of love. And I certainly don't want to give up on that. And I think one of the biggest traps we fall into is that we actually try to separate these two concepts. We think that they're opposite of each other. God is judgment, or is God, does God have love? Wh which is it? So we might say something like, oh, how could God truly judge me? It's not a very loving thing to, to do. You know, he's probably just saying that to sound big and bad and holy and whatever, but like, we're fine. When it all washes out, we're, we're okay. I'm fine. He wouldn't render judgment like that. And, and in this um, false dichotomy, we overlook the fact that God is so much bigger than us. And he does not experience the limitations of a character that we do. And that the way that the Bible talks about God is to declare him holy. Meaning he is not only set apart and above us, but he is so in all of the ways that make him morally exceptional. God is the standard of goodness. He is the standard of flawlessness. He is the standard of correct decision making. He is the standard of generosity. God is the standard of purity. He is the standard of faithfulness and justice. He's the standard of, of joy and hope and peace. God is the standard of love. God is set apart and he is above us and he is infinitely so in all of the ways that make him morally exceptional. And so for me to think about this idea of God, I, I have to recognize I'm doing so. I'm, I'm looking at the holiness of God and the, the, the divine judgment of God from a morality standpoint that is self-centered. That's how I see my world around me. I'm the one in the middle looking around, looking at things, viewing it from a limited lens of morality. I, I usually see the world, especially in a moral sense, from a self-centered, in a limited sense. Here's an example. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was, I was driving here um, during the middle of the week, and I was going to, I had a really important meeting with some other pastors, okay? And I was actually running a little bit late. I was in a hurry. And as it would turn out, the person driving in front of me was in no such apparent hurry. They're probably a wonderful, law-abiding citizen driving exactly the speed limit. And the temperature in my mind starts to rise, and I begin to render a judgment in my head on their character. 
that if they cared about people, they would not possibly think about the idea of holding someone like me up from getting to such an important meeting. And this is a petty example, but we do this, don't we? We view everything around us from a self-centered, in fact, a limited sense of morality. And even if we have a sense of a morality about how God should act, like our sense of morality is limited and God's is not. He is morally exceptional to us. So let's camp out on this idea for a bit, because let me think about this. What am I saying about God? What am I saying when I say a loving God would not judge human behavior? I am saying that God's love is either really weak or it doesn't exist. Because there are definitely lines of judgment I will draw. There are actions of justice I will perform if I love somebody and want to ensure their well-being. For example, what would you do if you saw a child or if you saw my child wandering towards a busy road and I didn't notice and no one else could see it? Would it be a loving thing to do to go and render a judgment on that child's action and change their course of action? I I would hope you would do that. What if this child kept doing this? Would it be a loving thing of you to consider how you might change that child's mind about ever performing an action like that again? Even possibly through a just and fair consequence. I would hope you would do that. You have my permission. If my kids are wandering towards the road and I don't see it, please stop them. And and you don't even need to be religious to agree with this. The world is messed up, right? But why is it messed up? On a simplistic level, it is messed up because we are messed up. Our societies, our cultures, our countries are made up of the nearly 8 billion people on planet Earth making 8 billion decisions every day to act out of some level of self-interest. And so as God is looking out over the world and he sees what humans are doing to each other, would it be loving of God to say, ah, you know, those humans, what a misguided bunch, but I love them. So I'm just going to, you know, overlook what's going on. I'm not really going to do anything about it. Would that be loving of God to say? Just ask that question to a father of of an abducted girl. Ask that question to the mother who is secretly struggling with the abuse that she struggled with in childhood, that, that happened to her that she didn't ask for. And now no one understands, and she doesn't have anyone to talk to. Just ask that question to the teen who is struggling with an addiction Because it's the only way he knows how to cope with the trauma that he's just witnessed. Would it be loving of God to just passively overlook the mess that we've made of this world? Is it loving if God just lets this stuff happen without ever stepping in to deal with it? No. Devoid of judgment, you would not actually say God is love. In fact, I would argue that judgment is not the opposite of love. Love is not the opposite of judgment. The opposite of judgment is probably more closely related to apathy. It's to say, I see what's happening, but I don't care. So I'm not going to do anything. And apathy, not caring, 
is not love. Judgment safeguards the victim. And judgment gives the opportunity for a change of heart to the aggressor. Judgment is a very passionate expression of love. And I think that we've just become sloppy when it comes to these two things. Actually, I think we're maybe even quite hypocritical when we try to separate these two concepts from each other. We tend to be more two-faced than we imagine. Because it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's a very good thing when somebody looks out on the world and cries for justice. Where the self-centered and compassionless actions of certain people are causing massive damage to others. That is a good thing to cry for justice. In fact, this over the course of this last year, we've seen this happen a lot, right? Um, and, and we've even heard this said to us at the church. You religious people better stop talking about mercy and understanding when justice is needed. Take action or you're part of the problem. And, and to a certain level, I agree. We need to look out for the cause of the oppressed. But the minute that our own selfishness and lack of compassion is put in the spotlight, all of a sudden we want mercy and not judgment. And you religious people better stop talking about God's judgment because he's a God of love and a God of grace. You should give mercy to me and grace to me or you're part of the problem. And we've painted God as one way in the world and another way in my world. We want justice on everyone else's sin, but only mercy on my own sin. And we try to separate these two concepts, partly because we're a little sloppy in our thinking. We haven't thought it all the way through, but partly because it's inconvenient to do so. And so, so let me ask the question, how, how does God remain appropriately just and judge human behavior while at the same time remaining a God of love who extends grace. How does God remain just and yet lovingly justify? He does exactly what the king does in verse 6. Notice this. He rises from his throne. He removes the very thing that identifies his royalty. He stoops down and identifies with his people's sin. And he goes even further into the dust. God, the holy and righteous one, left the splendor of heaven to live here on earth with his people. That's who Jesus is. And when he was hung on the cross, he was identifying with the sin of all humanity, bearing your judgment, bearing my judgment, and receiving the full wrath and anger of God against all of sin so you wouldn't have to. And it consumed him. Bearing the sinfulness of humanity was the thing that stole life from the author of life. And he was buried in the ground after he died. And the beautiful thing is, the good news is, he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, and offering all who put their faith and forgiveness in him, uh, all who put their faith in him, forgiveness and new life. And so that in one act, he remains perfectly just, while at the same time, lovingly justifying everyone who believes and turns to him. This is exactly what we see happening in Nineveh. That they believed God and they turned to him. They repented. So, so notice how this seems to resolve. Verse 10, okay? When God saw what they did, now they turned from their evil ways, he had, he had compassion. And he did not bring upon them the destruction that he threatened. This would be a beautiful story if it ended right here. Yes. 
God maintains his perfect justice. He is holy and he, and he remains just, but at the same time, he lovingly justifies those who did not deserve it. Yes, everything seems tied in a neat bow, but here's the question. What if the people of God, or, I'm sorry, what if the people that God is offering grace to repent, receive mercy, and then repent of their repentance? Because it doesn't take long for history to remind us that Assyria did not stay repentant like this for long. Maybe a generation at most, more likely a half generation. And they're back to their evil ways. So, so what about people whose repentance seems short-lived? What about people who can't even repent right? Is there grace for people who are very fragile and frail in their repentance? I would say a resounding yes. I think Jesus would say yes. This is why. Turn to Luke chapter 19. I'm sorry, Luke 11. I spoke. Luke chapter 11. Jesus is, is surrounded by a crowd who want him to prove that he's from God. Who are a little bit more interested in a religious system and Jesus doesn't seem to be fitting into that system. And in order to really believe him, they're like, you know what? You really seem to get things messed up around here. You got to prove that you're from God. Show us a sign. Verse 29 of Luke 11. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign. None will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment when the men of this generation come and condemn them. Uh, with, with this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. Verse 32. Jesus is talking about these specific people in Nineveh who repented when Jonah preached, okay? He's talking about these specific people we just asked about. What if they repent of their repentance? This is what Jesus says. The men of Nineveh, these men, will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. In other words, there is a final judgment someday. At which point, your course of life is irreversible. And there's going to be a wicked generation standing over here receiving condemnation because what we read, the, the inverse of what Jesus is saying here is they didn't repent. They heard the preaching and they didn't repent. They're a little bit more interested in just stacking themselves up on a religious scale and knowing like, man, do I fit better than this person? Do I live up to a set of rules better than this person? And they had no relationship with God, even though Jesus is literally coming to them to say, you can know God, you can be forgiven, you can be part of the kingdom of God. And he's preaching this and they did not repent. And on the other side of this judgment stand the men of Nineveh who repented. And yes, they repented of their repentance. You know the beautiful thing about Scripture? I get to ask this sometimes. Is it possible for me to lose my salvation? And I don't think that's the right question. Because the Bible doesn't talk about you earning your salvation. The Bible doesn't talk about you gaining your salvation. The Bible talks about God giving you salvation. So the better question is, is it possible for God to lose a Christian? 
Is it possible for God's grip to be loosened on you? Absolutely not. When the Holy Spirit saves somebody, he seals them. And so what we see here is despite their weak faith in responding to God, these men of Nineveh will still be found on the other side of judgment someday as a testimony to God's mercy to those who believe, to those who, who can't seem to even get it right when they do. There is very good news for, for those who turn from their evil and turn from their selfishness and in faith, not in perfection, in faith, turn to the God who abundantly pardons them. And so I look at this and I go, my goodness, this is the worst example I've ever seen up until this point in history of oppression and injustice and, and evil in this world. They were the paramount example. Nineveh. And the evil was repented of. And I look out at this world and I go, what is it going to take? What is it going to take for all the systemic oppression and injustice and evil that's happening on planet Earth? What's it going to take for it to come crashing down? For, for somebody to come and break through and to see cities saved? And on the other side of that question, Satan is asking, how do I keep letting evil win? How do I keep letting oppression happen? How do I keep encouraging injustice in this world? And you know the answer to that? I begin to let evil win when I refuse to turn from my sin. It starts with us. I can't expect evil collapse when I won't let it collapse in my own heart. When there's a place in my heart that I am harboring. God, you can, you can have influence around me, but I'm not going to let you have influence right here. Maybe God's talking to you today. You're feeling the, this gentle nudge or this delicate whisper of God's voice pointing to a particular point in your heart, in your own life. Know this, that God is offering mercy and grace and forgiveness and a new joy to you on the other side of repentance. When talking about this very event, Jesus highlights two options. Remain in your evil and self-centered pride, no matter how religious you look. But, but stand, a firm God against God, stand a firm guard against God taking over the entirety of your heart. And, and there's one option. The other option is find mercy and new life, like the Ninevites did on the other side of your repentance. And so maybe there's a repentance that, that you've been delaying, that God's been talking to you and speaking to you and going like, you can experience mercy. There's grace for you. You're sucking the life out of yourself by just harboring this thing. And you've just been delaying repentance or been like, I'll get to it someday. Or maybe you've repented, but now you're like, I, I'm, I'm just back into my old way. I've repented of my repentance. I, I just it didn't hold. It didn't stick. I wasn't strong enough. Maybe you're 
you've repented and you keep repenting and, and, and you keep turning to God, but you're just like, I'm exhausted. I don't know how much longer I can do this. Is there grace and hope for me? And today, God is offering you a fresh start. Whether it's the first time or the millionth time, God is saying, I love you right now. Let's start over. Today is the beginning of the rest of your life. It doesn't have to be the same. You can be part of seeing this world transformed and turned into beauty because I begin to let evil win when I refuse to turn from my sin. But when that's the thing that I'm like, God, I'm, I'm going to trust you by your grace. I'm going to turn again. Today's a very good day to trust God and to leave your sin behind. And tomorrow, we get up and God will give us mercy to trust him again. And yet again, we will face the decision to turn from the evil and the sin in my own heart. And I get up day after day, and it's the grace of God that enables me to do so. To leave the past behind and to walk into newness of life. And when, when the church begins to live this way, When we begin to be a testimony by the course of our lives that it's possible for God to change someone. It's possible for new life to be experienced. It's possible for joy to be found on the other side of depression. It's possible for resurrection to be found on the other side of life. It's possible for freedom to be found on the other side of addiction. It's possible for hope to be found on the other side of despair. When we are the testimony to that, the world will believe us. Let's not be the people who point to a Savior who saves, but we have refused to let him do it in our own hearts. I begin to let evil win when I refuse to repent of my sin, turn from my sin. So God is going to be glorified and evil is going to be defeated in this world. It's going to start to crumble when every day I wake up and I trust God enough to turn from the evil in my own heart. And I am going to be the beginning of world change. I will be the beginning of revival. Your own heart is the beginning location of a wildfire of Holy Spirit revival. Amen? Let's turn to the Lord. Jesus, thank you so much for offering us grace and pardon and, and a new life. And I pray that you would work in us. And as a result, you would change the world.